0: Can you
1: hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish.
2: Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two.
1: We're locked in today with someone who not long ago was a byword for intellectual freedom, the right to say what you like without fear or favour. And then the beardy old bigots who ran and still run Iran took exception to one of his books, The Satanic Verses and he came under sentence of death. He had to go into hiding and lived under police protection. There have been plenty of books, speeches and articles since then, including Languages of Truth, which we're going to talk about in a moment or two. But first, Salman, how's your lockdown been?
2: I think it's been like everybody else's. It's been not great. You know, I mean, I I, mean, I, I actually had the the coronavirus very early on. I I, I had a, a dose of it last March, um, right at the beginning, and fortunately not too badly. Um, and since then, I've been trying to find my way back to writing, which I think I've finally done.
1: You've managed it, but it put you off writing, did it, or it stopped you doing? It? You were too too knackered.
2: It stopped me. Well, at first I was yeah. There was a period of exhaustion, but then I don't know. I couldn't fi- I sort of couldn't find. Uh, the right direction. I, I did something which is very unusual for me, which is I started two different projects and wrote quite a bit, wrote like 50, 60, 70 pages, and then thought, this isn't good, you know, and, and had to put them aside. So it took me a long way to find find the direction again.
1: I was going to ask you a bit about how you work. Mm. Do you ever look at the word count on your on your PC and think, Nearly there.
2: Well, I do look at the word count. I'm I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with the word count. Um, (laughs) um, But not for that reason, just because I set myself an arbitrary number that I have to do a day. And and I deliberately set that number quite low. I mean, it's like 300 words, something, you know. um, And I know that even on a bad day, if I stick at it, I can do three hundred words, and then if it's a good day, then I do a bit more. It's a way. It's a kind of con trick. It's you know, that I'm playing on myself.
1: Do you work only in the morning or only in the evening or what?
2: Well, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, I work most. I don't work early in the morning. You know. I mean, I, I usually at my desk by nine thirty, kind of. You know, and and I do three or four hours, and then usually I my brain is gone for the day but I always return to it last thing at night I mean it's a sort of habit that um, before going to bed for the night I always read what I wrote that day Um, and partly because I see little things I want to fix and partly because I want to keep it in my head so I can wake up and it's there Uh, um, and so there's a sort of second stage and then what happens is later in the process I mean like when I'm When I'm doing the final version of the book, then I just work all the time, then I'm working like 15 hours a day on on kind of polishing the final draft.
1: And you're producing what you call serious literature as opposed to pulp fiction. How do you define the two?
2: (laughs) Well, it's very difficult to do that without being rude. I mean I think there's a the the difference maybe is that I'm trying to write something that I hope will will endure and I hope will outlast me I hope that people will be interested in reading it uh in the future as well as in the present and a lot of uh commercial fiction is written for the immediate success for immediate gratification and really doesn't have an eye on posterity you know so I mean you know the the great novels, the great commercial successes of the past, you know, Michael Allen's The Green Hat, Grace Metallius's Peyton Place, you know, nobody reads them anymore. But they, but they sold billions of copies at the time. Uh, they're not built to last. You know, um, Sometimes they do. I mean, sometimes by a curious mixture, the, the commercial fiction becomes also an enduring fiction. I think that's true of some of Stephen King, for example. You know, that, uh, when
1: you look been... at someone like Dan Brown for example though I mean there's a man who was who just set out to write a bestseller I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that is there
2: Nothing wrong with it it's just it's just and I I mean I think he does it much better than I could um but that's that's truthfully when I set out to be a writer selling books wasn't something I never thought I would do you know I, I mean selling large quantities of books it never occurred to me that that would happen you know i mean i i thought if i could get a decent publisher and i can sell just about enough copies to have that publisher want to publish the next book and the next book then that'll be fine you know it never occurred to me that i was doing this to be a bestseller and then i guess the success of midnight's children changed that but i i i wasn't i certainly was not expecting that you know i mean i, I uh, nobody knew who i was when i wrote midnight's children it was this enormous Long and kind of formally weird book. And I thought, well, it's got a good publisher. It's published by Jonathan Cape in England, it's published by Alfred Knopf in America. I was happy with that. You know, I thought, let's hope it comes out and people like it, and it does reasonably well. But it, the words bestseller never crossed my mind.
1: I interviewed Lee Child, the thriller writer, not so long ago. Yeah. And he said it was actually harder, he thought, to write. And he, he made an, an analogy, a comparison with cars, car manufacturers. It was much more difficult to produce a, a Mondeo than it was to produce a Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce was really only suitable for one person, built for that person, and it was easier to do.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to argue with him. I mean, I, I think... Uh, I don't see that what I'm doing is being a Rolls-Royce. I, mean, I, I, I mean, I think... Uh, I like it that people like to read what I write you know, um, and I'm happy, I've been fortunate as a writer to have been able to make a living from it since I was, I mean, Midnight Children, when it came out, I, I was 34, you know, so that's now, now I'm about to be 74, so that's a, that's a long time to be able to earn your living doing the, doing the thing that you enjoy doing, you know, so I'm happy with that.
1: How many books do you reckon you've sold?
2: Well, one of the reasons I don't know is that India is very good at pirating books. Um, And I mean, Midnight's Children was, and several of the other books were, were pirated in India. And I have absolutely no idea how much they sold, but I know they sold quite a lot. It got to the point where the pirates were so happy that they started sending me greetings cards. I, I would I would literally get it in the mail or through the publishers, I would get a card which said, Happy birthday, the pirates. <laughs> now
1: you mentioned getting old. You are a pretty old geezer these days. So am I.
2: Well, you know, we're all getting there, Jerry, you know. But but my plan is to live forever. I don't know about yours.
1: I don't want to live forever.
2: Well then we have different plans.
1: But you can't possibly enjoy getting old.
2: No, I don't enjoy that. Um, but I don't. I think I'd enjoy the alternative less.
1: What being dead?
2: Yes, for example.
1: <laughs> what do you think will happen to you when you die?
2: Nothing. I mean, I, I, I've never had any kind of belief or shred of belief in an afterlife. Um, so I think we've got this, you know. We got this one time, one turn at one time around. That's it.
1: So you believe yeah. your body will rot, and that's it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I won't be around to notice it, but I think that's what'll happen. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, Kundera's wonderful book, *The Unbearable Lightness of Being*. Uh, what he means by that is that we get one go. That's it. You know, we, we, there's no second draft. There's no revised version. There's no there's no volume two. There's no reboot there's just this and i think that's it's actually what it makes me one do makes me do anyway is to really value the days you know to say this this is this is what we have make the best of it make it make it as good as you can make it for you, for, for yourself and others
1: do you think it makes you write better
2: well i don't know because i've never written the other thing i've never written religious uh, stuff motivated by religion but there are wonderful writers are religious. I mean, um, Marilyn Robinson, for example, I mean, I think her, her writing is very infused with her, her faith and, it's, and she's a great writer, you know, so, so I don't think, it, you know, it depends, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's necessary to be one thing or the other in order to be good. I mean, being good is something else.
1: Young writers are often being told they should write what they know. Yeah. Do you endorse that yeah. view?
2: No, I, I, kind of, I do and I don't. I mean, I think I, I know what people are saying when they say that. They say right out of some kind of knowledge or experience. Um, the trouble is that a lot of people have, particularly when you're young, have pretty limited experience um, of the world, you know, and, and, um, and there isn't a lot there to chew on. you know. And, and uh, my view is if, you're, if what you know isn't fascinating... That go and find something that is. Go and find something out. You know? And I've always loved. One of the reasons I love the work of Charles Dickens is the enormous breadth of his canvas. So how much of society he can write about. You know, he can he can write about cut purses and archbishops. You know, and and everything in between. And that means going, you know, going and finding out and and getting to learn the world. You know, and and I think that's. That's the advice I give myself and certainly would give others. And I've always said to myself that I like the idea that when I finish a book, I know things I didn't know when I started the book. You know, that, that, that the book is a, some kind of a voyage of discovery for me as well.
1: You can say that even as a journalist, though, and you mentioned Dickens's familiarity with much of the world. Much of that was to do with his being a journalist, wasn't it?
2: Exactly, and I, I do think that that there is an area in which this is the area in which journalism and and fiction actually overlap. I think there there is a lot to be said. I, you know, in New York now, I teach at at New York University, but I teach in the journalism school, and and it. Uh, <laughs> And, and it's because I like teaching journalism students because they have uh, at least one foot in the real world, you know, and, and uh, they're interesting as a result. Uh, and I, I mean, I've been teaching a course about narrative nonfiction to try and look at this thing that's happened in the last half century or so where book-length works have been written in the style of a novel, in the manner of a novel, using the techniques of the novel, but which are in fact true stories. Uh, and And that sort of now this blurred boundary between literature and journalism is a very interesting place to look you know and um uh, fun to teach,
1: but you look at other nine. I was just thinking of other nineteenth century authors i mean mm. you look at the look at the bronte sisters, for example, they mm. led a very, very sheltered life. How on earth were they to know about some creature like Heathcliff or Mr. Rochester?
2: Well, I mean, I think you have to allow the imagination to play a part, you know, and, and, and uh, they, they, they certainly had that. But what they did do is write about their milieu. They wrote about the social class and the kind of, the kind of world that they inhabited themselves. Um, many of them, I think all of them actually, at some point or other worked as governesses and things like that. And, and, and no doubt came across versions of Heathcliff. Um, but I think I think it's uh, you know one of the things I think about about that moment, Brontës and, and, and also and also actually Jane Austen, is that private life and public life were incredibly separate then. You know, so so Jane Austen, whose career co- writing career coincides almost exactly with the Napoleonic Wars, um, could could ignore them. Almost entirely, you know, because they didn't impinge on the lives of her characters. So, you know, the army in Jane Austen is the function of, of soldiers in Jane Austen is to put on smart uniforms and look cute at parties, you know. Uh, and she doesn't have to look at the public sphere, whereas now we live in a time in which, you know, public life and private life collide all the time, every day almost. And so we have to th- think differently about about how we deal with that.
0: $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring
0: highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during
1: Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com
0: slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Can I ask you something about writing again? Yeah. Do you think that writing can be taught,
2: decent writing can be taught? I think things about it can be taught, yes. I think craft can be taught.
1: But those, that's like journalism. Alternate long sentences, short sentences, that sort of thing.
2: You can teach people how to do it better. I mean, that, that you can do. Um, what you can't do, I think, and it's one of the reasons why I've never taught creative writing, um, what, what you can't do is to teach people a, a way of seeing the world that's interesting. You know? and, and I think great writing comes out of that. It comes out of a, a, a worldview that is idiosyncratically the, the property of the author. And it comes out of a relationship with language, Um, and those things are difficult to teach. I mean, they can—if you have something there to begin with, you can you can be helped. You know, but I never did it. I mean, I never went to any kind of creative writing school. I never studied literature. You know, so I'm I'm here, kind of completely self-taught.
1: Do you think that writing can be taught? Well, tricks. That's all.
2: Things can. I mean, you can teach people how to make it better. You can teach people how to polish a paragraph. You can teach people how to improve the shape of something that they've written. Um, I think you can't teach them the essential gift. I think the word, I think the word gift actually is, is literally true. I think that sometimes some of us receive gifts you get uh, the gift of music the gift of the gift of language the gift of you know these the gift of art and i think we just have to feel we're lucky to have received the gift and use it as best we can
1: you know it's increasingly the case nowadays isn't it that people are told they should only write about things they know about that's rubbish isn't it
2: well i mean it's 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 rubbish if that if that if it means that you don't need, if, if, you, if by that you understand that you don't need to increase the sum of what you know about. Um, I mean, you should obviously have knowledge in order to write well, but, but knowledge can also be something that you gain. It doesn't just have to be the stuff you know sitting in your room uh, for the whole of your life. You go and find things out. And, and um, I've always thought, I mean, in, in a couple of novels ago, when I was writing The Golden House, um, there's a character in it who is a kind of transgender character and 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 in order to write that i had to make sure that i went out and found out a lot about it you know i talked to people and tried to try to understand it uh, that 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 whole business of 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 transitioning from one gender to another and what it feels like and what the problems of it are and how it's received and how people what people feel about how it's received and I was actually rather kind of proud that when the book came out, i, mean, I was said half expecting to be trashed, you know, because everybody gets trashed yeah. for everything now, and I and I wasn't. So either nobody read it, or I or I managed to get it right.
1: But there, you think about all the alternative realities that are out there now in fiction. You look at J.K. Rowling. You look at the Hunger Games. You look at you know one series of novels after another posits an alternative reality. Do you think that has anything to do with how we live now?
2: Yes, because I think um, reality is not just a given. It is not just something that sits there and is, and is immutable. You know, uh, it shifts all the time. And we actually live in a time which is very metamorphic, you know, when enormous changes happen very quickly and and so the to begin to think in a way where you can imagine other realities other ways of being um is, is i think it's a great thing to do because it first first of all it's a way of trying to understand thought processes lives feelings attitudes which are not your own um it's a, it's a way of getting out of your own place i mean i believe in in that we live in a in a world literature you know and and it's great if you could come out of your cozy little world and experience a different world, um, whether that's a real one or a, or a fantasy one. I mean, anyway, it doesn't matter. So I think we live in this time of changeability and, alter- and, and reality shifts all the time. I mean, we're living in the middle of it. You know, I mean, a year and a quarter ago, we wouldn't have believed what the last year and a quarter has been like. And, and it changed almost overnight. You know, there was a moment when nobody was thinking about the coronavirus. And five minutes later, it changed the whole world, and that's the way in which reality can transform all the time. So, alternative realities, in a way, are a way—they're uh, uh, a way of thinking about how the how things could be if they weren't as they are.
1: Do you like the modern world? Well, I... That's an invitation to be an old fart, isn't it? I'm so sorry.
2: I mean, I don't have a choice. You know, I mean, this is the only one we've got. Um, so, yeah, either you're going to spend your life being a miserable old duffer or you can embrace the world you know and I, I i prefer that option i mean i like you know as a reader i like books that embrace the world i like books that take great big armfuls of the world and try and put them in the book you know um which is again why why i like it's why i like the 18th century so i like charles dickens i like tristram shandy Lawrence stern um these are capacious books you know and and in more recent times people like saul bellow uh, you know, I, I admire the, their, their desire to, t- to, to include as much of reality as they can get in.
1: Why do you spend your time on Twitter?
2: I t- very little, actually, Jeremy. Very little. Every so often. I mean, these days, I have been largely because I've been trying to draw attention to and raise money for the calamity in India, the coronavirus calamity in India. That's taken me into, into Twitter um, I mean, what happened is, I, I mean, years ago, somebody suggested to me that I should try it out and I might have fun. And I tried it out and for a while I did have fun. I thought it was enjoyable and it was quite nice to have a million people following you, you know. So, um, and then at a certain point, I just lost interest and I almost completely stopped doing it. And now I sort of dip in and out. And mostly I dip in in order to tell people information about, you know, I've got a book coming out or, you know, in the days when there were such things as book tours, what I was doing on book tour. <laughs> um, but I use it less and less, and I and the other media too. I mean, I barely ever use Facebook, um, and I'm kind of weaning myself gradually. The time will come when I don't do it at all.
1: It's become very nasty, hasn't it?
2: It has, and it it has, and I think a certain amount of that has to do with the ability to be anonymous. You know, I think I think if people if if people were in the room with you. With, and you knew their name, they wouldn't talk to you like that. You know, I, th- I think somehow the, the fact that they're able to conceal themselves behind a pseudonym allows people to be more outspoken and less courteous.
1: And yet you support free speech, don't you?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, it would be a, it would be a strange writer who didn't. It would be A strange writer who said, I believe that we should all be censored.
1: Not necessarily censored, but courteous and uh, honest. The,
2: the point about literature, if we're talking seriously about it, is that literature is about the truth, and the truth is not always polite. Um, if, if one wanted to tell the truth about a lot of what's going on in the world right now, it would be difficult to do it courteously, because it makes one angry. You know, if I look at what's happening in India, if I look at what only just a few months ago stopped happening in the United States... Um, it, it makes you angry, uh, the, how how the world has been run. And if you were to write about that, I think courtesy would actually be a way of chickening out. So do you support the cancel culture then? Well, you see, I think that the problem with that term, it, it, tends, to use, it tends to be used by the right in order to complain about being held responsible for terrible things that they say. They don't, for example, object to canceling Liz Cheney because she thinks the election wasn't fixed they'll cancel that you know so um, the way I think about it is I don't use that term myself i I in an old fashioned way talk about censorship and and I do worry that amongst this younger progressive generation much of which is I find very admirable there is a kind of belief that certain kinds of statement can be suppressed and that it's beneficial that they should be. And and one of the things I know about the history of censorship, if anybody who studies it can see, is that where authoritarian governments seek to limit what can be said, minority groups are the people who are censored first. You know, um, uh, minority opinion is the, is the first thing that suffers from censorship and majoritarian views dominate. So if in the name of this or that oppressed minority, you you are in favour of censorship, then that's a slippery slope. You know, you're, you're just opening the door to 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 something which could end up damaging the people and the ideas that you're trying to support.
1: So while it may not be damaging of itself, it is potentially dangerous.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think... And, you know, this is something I've changed my mind about, because when I was living in England for all those years, for example, there was the Race Relations Act, and I I, I saw no problem with the Race Relations Act. You know, if you want to stop people making racist remarks, I thought, fair enough. When you live in America in, in the land of the First Amendment, the First Amendment draws the line in a different place, and it allows a whole variety of unpleasant speech, which things like the Race Relations Act would prevent. And... I had to really think about that. I think, is that a good idea or a bad idea? And in the end, I came to the conclusion that I was more on the side of the First Amendment because I would rather know who the people were who had unpleasant opinions rather than have it all swept under the carpet. And also, I worry a great deal about the power of taboo. If you ban things, if you make them taboo, you don't diminish their power. You know, sometimes you increase their power. You increase their glamour. And so my view is rather said than not said, you know, rather expressed than suppressed. Um, And that means, of course, agreeing to permit some very unpleasant kinds of speech. Would you say you were woke? No, I have a a grammatical issue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I think
1: it's a ridiculous term myself, but there we are.
2: Well, I mean, look, I think being aware of of the world as it is and not as the world that people who run the world would wish us to think it is, is not such a bad thing.
1: Tell me about being on Curb Your Enthusiasm to change the subject.
2: Okay, well, well, it was two days, but it was very enjoyable. I mean, what happened was I I, I had met, I had very casually met Larry David. I didn't know him really. and. And I guess he had an idea and, and he got in touch with me through the literary agency and asked me to call him, so I did, and, and, and he said, would I like to be in, in, this, in this, this story in which he, Larry David, um, acquired a fatwa against him by saying something that was disliked by the powers that be. And he wanted to write a musical based on my experience that's got, what that's what this the episode was going to be about i get you know fatwa exclamation mark um, and in at first at first i thought i don't know is this really funny or is it not funny um, and then funny. i and then i thought you know okay if we can make fun of it it's a way of taking its power away it's a way of, it's a way of defusing it and so i thought yeah I, I will do that i'll make fun of it and so i agreed to do it and then I went and had two days which were enormously enjoyable, but they were also a little scary because curb your enthusiasm is almost entirely improvised um, there's actually no script um, there's literally no script uh, What there is is a series of scene descriptions so they so they will sit you down in a in a in a setting. And they'll tell you, roughly speaking, what needs to happen in the scene. It needs to start here, it needs to finish there. You need to get from here to there. But how you do it is entirely up to you. Uh, and so doing that for two days, in the company of people who are improv geniuses, you know, was was a little scary. I thought, I don't want to be the only person on Curb Your Enthusiasm who's not funny. Um, but you and,
1: liked living on your nerves.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I mean, I'm actually very pleased with the way it came out, but but it might have not. And what they do, of course, is they overshoot ridiculously. They shoot much, much more than they need. So if you're no good, they've got plenty of options of, for almost cutting you out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How do you find America, though? I mean, is it, is it is it generally a place that you can you feel at home in,
2: or? I I wouldn't say America. I would say I mean I I in a way I don't live in America. I live in New York City, you know um, and. And I've always, since I was very young, loved New York. I mean, I first went there in the days when I was still working in advertising. I, I went there when I was, I must have been 25 or something, and because I had been asked to write travel ads to encourage people in England to take their holidays in America. And so they, they sent me on a trip around America to have a holiday so I could come back and write about having a holiday. Um, it, was a good, it was a good gig. Very uh, good gig. Uh, and I remember going to New York in the, this is, I guess, in the early 70s. It was a very different city then. I mean, it was broke and dirty and cheap, actually, and, and full of young artists in the downtown area. And it was enormously exciting. And, and I thought, one of these days, I just want to come and put myself here and see what happens. And, and it took me a very long time to do it. And the city had changed a lot by then, but... When I did put myself here to see what happened, it, I found that I, it was a good fit, you know, to, um square peg, fine square hole.
1: It's lived up to expectations then?
2: New York City, yes. I mean, I really enjoy it. And I mean, there are parts of America that I don't feel at home in, you know. Um, uh, it won't surprise you to know that it's the kind of liberal coasts on which I feel most comfortable. Of course. And the, the you know, the kind of middle of the country is a different place.
1: When you look at India today, Salman, what do you think?
2: On the whole, I feel, I feel really very sad about what's happening there. And, and even before, obviously, the the, the crisis of the uh, of the coronavirus surge there is now just appalling. That the the scale of death, the scale of the of the calamity, uh, is just, just horrifying. Um, but I mean, I had the uh, sort of larger complaint, if you like, which is people of my generation, people who were born with the country, so to speak. We were we bought into the idea of the secular state, the state that that, that, that the founding fathers Nehru and Gandhi created, uh, in where they believed that that keeping religion out of the stru- structure of the sa- state was the best way of of guaranteeing harmony, you know, uh, and and. Uh, and I believe that, and the country has was was like that for a very long time. And and then since the I guess since the seventies, there's been a rise of, of what gets called Hindu nationalism. And and that now embodied in the current government is is essentially trying to to demolish the Nehruvian Gandhian idea of the of the state to to secularize it, to make it a, a Hindu, a Hindu nationalist state in which everybody else, followers of other religions and no religion, are in a way second class citizens, and and they're in the process of trying to literally rewrite history. They're rewriting the history books um, to to fit that agenda. Uh, it's also just a simply very authoritarian state which moves very harshly against people who criticize it um, and oppose it. And, and, it's, and it's also incompetent, as has been shown in its response to, uh, to COVID. Um, so that, that triple problem of desecularization, authoritarianism and incompetence is, you know, it's worth a little criticism.
1: How do you feel about pubs? pubs? Yes.
2: I never go to them. I was never a pub person. I don't like warm beer.
1: (laughs) Well, you're hopeless for the lock-in then, aren't you? (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) No, I never was a a pub-going person. I like restaurants with nice food.
1: Very good, yes. I've seen you in various of them. But thereby lies incrimination.
2: Well, you like them too, because that's why why you're there.
1: I do. Right, well, I'm gonna let you go, Salman. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot for talking
2: to us. Very enjoyable. Thank you.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,